want to thank you for subscribing and listening in to our podcast today. Uh, please rate and review us. We would also love to connect with you. If you would like to, to speak to a pastor, you want more information about our church, text CONNECT to 903-586-6520 and we will follow up with you. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, you can text GIVE to 903-586-6520 and click on the link and you will have the option of giving one time or on a regular basis. We would greatly appreciate your support and thanks again for listening. Have a great week. How do you measure greatness? What, in your opinion, makes for a great leader? Read an article recently with this message in mind in, in Forbes. I don't normally read articles in Forbes, just to let you know that. But I did for this lesson, with this lesson in mind, with this sermon in mind. And, and I, I read, in particular, an article on the topic of leadership entitled Essential Qualities That Define Great Leadership. And here are some of the qualities that were listed. One, sincere enthusiasm. A, a successful CEO was quoted in the article saying, when leaders are sincerely enthusiastic and passionate, that's contagious. Another quality was great communication skills. According to the article, poor communication can lead to poor outcomes. Leaders who fail to develop these skills are, are often perceived as being weak. Another is decisiveness. Great leaders make decisions and take calculated risks. Managerial competence. Leaders inspire, motivate, mentor, and direct. Another quality was empowerment. A good leader has faith in their ability and empowers those they lead to act autonomously. They trust themselves and they, they, they trust their team members and entrust them with tasks. And lastly, there is charisma. The best leaders are well-spoken, according to this article, approachable and friendly. I think that many of us in here would, would, would agree that these are, are qualities that are, that are found in, in leaders in the workplace. These are, these are qualities that are normally highly valued. You probably read articles or books on leadership with, with similar lists, right? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 22. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at verses 24 through 30 this morning. And in this passage, Jesus gives his list of desirable qualities for truly great leaders. And surprisingly, he omits all of these. But he gives us his list, not found in this list. Let me set up the conversation for you between Jesus and his disciples Jesus is with them in the upper room. He has just introduced a new ordinance for his disciples. He has just led them in their first Lord's Supper meal. Very shocking to his Jewish disciples. They had gathered for Passover, and this was their last divinely ordained 
Passover meal in their first divinely ordained Lord's Supper meal, a key night in church history. And then Jesus tells them something else that's shocking. He says, one of you will betray me. One of the 12 will betray me. That really shocks at least 11 of 12, right? Look at verses 21 through 23 again. We studied this a few weeks ago. Jesus tells them, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God is sovereign. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Man is responsible. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be who's going to do this? This, this floored 11 of the 12. They're, they're shocked response to Jesus's accusations leads them as well into another discussion that they have had before and it is this topic on who is the greatest now it's it's really easy to see how how one leads to another Jesus tells them one of you will betray me they're like surely it's not not me right and then they start talking well it's not going to be me surely not me and then it kind of leads to who's the greatest among us right you can see how they made that leap. They're with Jesus. Many of them have sacrificed a great deal. They have left home. They have left family to follow him. They're feeling pretty good about their, their commitment to the Lord. And then he drops this bomb on them. One of you is going to betray me. They, they respond in shock. Who could do such a thing? In Matthew 26, they're, they're recorded by Matthew as saying, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Surely not me. They thought pretty highly of themselves at this time. In Matthew's account, after Jesus tells them that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered, Peter responds in this way, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, careful, Peter, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So before you go beating up on Peter, he's just leading the bunch. We'll learn more of what Jesus says to Peter and the lessons we learned from that conversation in the next text. But 11 of the 12 disciples had this view of themselves when hearing Jesus' words here. They were, were confident in their own abilities that they would follow Jesus in death. They eventually did, but not right away. They would first fall away because they had misplaced confidence in their own strength. They had sincere enthusiasm. They truly believed they would stand for Christ regardless of the opposition. They were decisive in their commitment to follow Jesus. They had great faith in their own abilities to remain faithful. This confidence is what led to this discussion. Look at verse 24. A dispute arose among them to, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Again, I wish I could tell you this was the only time this conversation happened, but it would not be true. Back in Luke 9, we're told they're arguing over the same thing. This was a topic they returned to again and again. I can just see it. One of you will betray me. Is it I? Is it I? Surely not me. They begin bragging on their own commitment to the Lord. 
Peter did this back in Luke 18, 28. See, we've left our homes and followed you. Peter left his nets behind. Matthew, a lucrative career as a tax collector. And their response here is a prideful one. And so Jesus responds with a lesson in humility. The disciples struggle with pride. They struggle with these visions of grandeur. They, they, they had been hand-selected by the Messiah of all people to follow him and learn of him. And they began to think to themselves, you know what? We're something. I bet there's a special place in God's kingdom for, for us. They began to discuss and argue over who deserves supreme place. They began to think to themselves. They had this following Jesus thing licked. They began to think there's no trial that, that they could not overcome in their own strength. Deny you, Jesus? Never. We're sold out for you. Fall away? Us? We're, we are willing to lay our lives down for you fall in the face of opposition, we're going to stand for you no matter what to the very end. That's what they believed. They were a prideful bunch. Jesus tells them here like he does elsewhere, to be my disciples, you are going to have to die to that way of thinking. You're going to have to come to the end of yourselves. You're going to have to see that your confidence in yourself is misplaced. You're going to have to see your helplessness and your desperate need of me. You are going to have to humble yourself. That is a great message for us today because pride is our struggle as well. It absolutely is. Some hear this story and they think, unbelievable. We would, we would like to think that we would not even entertain the thought in Jesus' presence of, of being considered the greatest. We think that, yet we come into places like this in the presence of God with his people, and we begin to think pretty highly of ourselves. You know, I'm faithful to come here each and every week. I'm here, unlike so-and-so that I hardly ever see here. Some of us look at our relationship to the Lord and our service to Him and think, you know what, I, I'm doing great. I'm one of the more faithful in this church. These other believers got to get it together like me. I bet there are few who give more time than I do to this church. Probably few who give more money than I do. There are few here who know more than I do. Well, I could really teach these pastors a thing or two about the Bible. People thinking that way, I've heard it. The disciples were thinking in this way. The enemy can use all kinds of weapons to weaken us in ministry, and one of his greatest is pride. Well, what is... Jesus going to do here. These guys are really struggling. He's telling them about how he'll be betrayed and handed over and killed. And these guys question Jesus on that. Surely not me. And then they move to talking about how great they are. 
This is a hard-headed, prideful bunch, isn't it? If I'm Jesus, I might be tempted to go roaming the streets in these last hours to look for another 12. But he doesn't. He continues to instruct them and he gives them some great lessons here on true greatness. He, he shows them who is truly great in his kingdom. And surprise, surprise, what he tells them is counter to the, the attitudes and values one finds in the world, in their world and in ours. First, Jesus shows his disciples point number one. Those who are great in God's kingdom show humility. Look at verses 24 through 26. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be guarded, regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Jesus lets him know here there needs to be a change in the way they are thinking concerning greatness. They, they are thinking like the ungodly Gentiles. They were thinking that, that there is to be this, this hierarchy with, with one individual standing in authority above the rest. Jesus lets his disciples know that, that while the, the, the world is structured in this way, that is not to be the structure for you. Too bad many churches throughout church history skip this lesson of Jesus either skipped right over it or explained it away many tragic events in church history could have been avoided if the church would have been structured more in the way Jesus calls for here Jesus warns his disciples here of this structure of leadership he says that's the way the ungodly Gentiles are structured and the way they exercise authority, but not so with you. Now, Jesus is not denying that there is to be leadership in the church. There absolutely is. Read the book. Many have missed this as well. Some argue that the church is not to have any structure of leadership. Jesus is not saying that. He is saying that leaders in the church are to lead differently than leaders lead in the world. They're to lead with humility. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Jesus is speaking here of how they must view themselves we we have said this already children were not the 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 focus like they are in our world today we live in a very child-centric society i share with you the joke several years ago one of my girls when it was mother's day asked when is children's day and what did i how did i respond to them every day is children's day right but that's not the case in in this society okay not true in, in, in first century Jewish culture. Children had little to no social status in this day. They were lowly nobodies. In this day, the youngest in the family, the youngest in the community, occupied the lowest place in society. They were the least honored, and they knew it. Jesus tells his disciples, to be great in my kingdom, you must see yourself in this way, as the least honored. Not as a ruler, not as a Caesar, 
Not as a monarch, a pharaoh, but as a lowly child. One who is lowly and insignificant and incomplete need. Jesus' disciples are those who know they're undeserving. They know they're lowly. Needy peasants at God's throne of grace. Folks, that is who we truly are. We've been singing about our great need this morning. We absolutely are. We are in desperate need. No one, not any of us, brings anything of worth to the table in and of themselves. No one merits anything significant apart from God. Listen, believers, if you view yourself any different than that, you need to repent. Because that's who God says you are. If you're here today struggling with the sin of pride, you need to repent because you are not viewing yourself correctly. You got nothing to be proud of. Me either. None of us do. By God's grace, you are who you are. If you're an obedient disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, you're simply doing what's required of every faithful Christ follower, and you would not be where you are spiritually had the Spirit of God not transformed you from the inside out. You would not be obedient and and working hard for the Lord were He not working in you to will and to work. The praise for where you are spiritually. What? In the Lord. To be great in the kingdom, you must view yourself in this way and minister accordingly. You're going to be encouraged this week in your study guide to spend time repenting of pride. One, and asking that God, by His grace, give you eyes to see yourself for who you truly are, so that your praise is properly placed, is properly placed, and so that you minister effectively in a way that brings glory and honor to God with humility. Next point. That would be enough right there, wouldn't it? <laughs> but he gives us more. Jesus shows his disciples here that those who are great in God's kingdom serve others. They serve others. Look at verses 26 and 27. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Verse 27, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Once again, Jesus disrupts their worldly view of leadership and greatness and shows them that the one who is truly great in God's kingdom is the leader who serves. He says, the greatest among you is the leader who serves. Jesus says, while in your minds and in society you've been taught that the one who reclines at table is better than the one who is serving not so in God's kingdom. Jesus' words here completely floored them and everyone else in this culture. They all knew that it was the master of the house 
and his guest reclining at table. Those are the greatest, and it's the one waiting by the door to wash their feet before they came in. He was the one who was the lowliest. No, not in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the greatest is he who serves. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, Mark 9, 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 10, 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And after giving this, this counter-cultural principle on greatness in God's kingdom, Jesus gives them an example himself. He says... But I am among you as one who serves. What do you say about that? He's God the Son, right? Lord of all. The greatest in, in existence. And he makes it clear to his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus did not just teach this. He exampled this, making it impossible for them or any of us to deny that greatness is displayed in service. In John's account of this event, you're going to read it this week. Jesus takes off his outer, outer garments. He wraps a towel around his waist. And he washes his disciples' feet. You'll read that. Read that this week. And he calls for them to follow in his example. Not that we're to just be going around washing feet. He's giving them an example of, of greatness in, in serving, how we're to view ourselves and how we're to treat others. As we continue with Luke's gospel narrative, we see Jesus demonstrate this by laying his own life down for us at Calvary. Paul in Philippians 2, you can turn there if you're quick. Philippians 2 uses Christ's incarnation and crucifixion as the ultimate example for the Christians at Philippi, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The Christians at Philippi are struggling with pride. They're having a, a difficult time putting others' needs before their own. They had a lot of positives, but, but they struggled there. They were struggling to love and serve one another as they should, so Paul encourages them to just consider Jesus' example. If you're having a difficult time seeing yourself in the proper light and, and acting accordingly, just look to the example of Jesus. Verse 5 of Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul calls for the Christians at, 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 at Philippi to have the mind of Christ. While he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to cling to, but instead he emptied himself. Now, he did not cease to be God. He did not empty himself of deity. Come Sunday night, we're talking about this. No, he emptied himself by taking on, by becoming one of us, which should really humble us, that he emptied himself by becoming like you and me. He became a man. He took on flesh. He did something he didn't have to do. He, he took on a role he did not have to take on. And Paul's point here is that if this is true of Christ, very, very simple, how much more so should this be true of you and me? 
We got no leg to stand on, do we? There are a lot of tasks in the church today that people refuse to do because they somehow think they're above it. Paul's point here is, if Christ did not refuse to humble himself, neither should we. Neither should we. And, and, and Paul tells us here in Philippians 2, we're to have this mind in us, believers. Christ went further than that. In addition to emptying himself by becoming one of us, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went above and beyond in his service to us. Christ, our creator, entered into creation, not just as a human, but a lowly human, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. His glory concealed, he appeared outwardly as just another face in the crowd. And he went further still by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so Paul shows us in this passage, Christ went above and beyond for you and me. He not only refused to selfishly cling to his equality with God, he not only emptied himself by taking on flesh, he went beyond a lowly servant to the point of enduring a painful death on a shameful cross in our place. And again, the point Paul is making here is this. If Christ humbled himself to this extent, if he served in this way, how much more so should we be willing to humble ourselves and serve others? That's the point Jesus is making here to his disciples in the midst of this ridiculous conversation over who's going to be the greatest. He says, I am among you as one who serves. He said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. C.T. Studd, look at this quote on the screen. He once said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Leave that up, take a picture of that with your phone, take it with you this week. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's your application right there. Good luck trying to argue with it. <laughs> if we're going to follow Christ's example, we have to be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to go above and beyond in our service to others. If the purest of all to ever live could endure betrayal and denial and trial and beating and mockery and crucifixion and the very wrath of God for us, how much more so should we be willing to obey God and sacrifice by going above and beyond in our service to others? Those who are truly great in God's kingdom, they show humility. Those who are great in God's kingdom, they serve others. Third and finally, those who are great in God's kingdom sacrifice earthly praise for heavenly glory. The disciples had sacrificed already, right? In the days ahead, they would sacrifice even more. But up to this point, they had sacrificed. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. 
Peter reminded Jesus as if he needed reminding in Luke 18, 28. See, we have left our homes and followed you. Jesus tells Peter, you will sacrifice much more than that. But up to this point, they had sacrificed. When the teachings of Jesus had gotten difficult in John 6, many left, the disciples stayed. Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? To which Peter responded in John 6, 68, Lord, whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus was not popular with the religious leaders and the disciples were guilty by association. They had sacrificed. They would sacrifice even more. After Matthias replaced Judas Iscariot in Acts 1, the 12 all go on to faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They saturate Jerusalem with the message of, of, of Jesus and his gospel. Read the Luke's part 2, the part 2 to Luke, the book of Acts, and you'll learn about that. And the gospel spreads from there. God's kingdom advances throughout Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, and they pay the price for that. They sacrifice greatly in their service to God, and Jesus tells them here in verses 29 through 30 that there is great reward for their faithfulness. He says, look at beginning in verse 29, And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this is amazing right here. Remember, they have yet to go and do anything, really. They have yet to go and do this incredible work of ministry, but Jesus promises them the kingdom and a prominent seat in glory. I, I love that. He, he tells them beginning, at the beginning of the book of Acts, before he, he ascends to the right hand of the Father on high, that they will be empowered on high by the Holy Spirit, and they will be his witnesses. Not they might be, they will be his witnesses to in Jerusalem and, and to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He promises to do this work in and through them by the power of his spirit before leaving them to do it. And here he promises them before they do anything significant, he promises them a kingdom, a place at his table, and a prominent position in glory, a throne in his forever kingdom to exercise authority. While they are still pridefully arguing on the eve of Jesus' arrest and before his crucifixion over who will be the greatest, while they, they are still selfishly fixed on themselves, they have no idea what's about to go down. Soon the shepherd will be struck and them, they, the sheep, will be scattered. Jesus lets them know in that moment that their story has already been written. Wow, right? As they have been faithful up to this point, they will be faithful and they will continue to be faithful and they will be rewarded richly in glory. That's to be their motivation moving forward. Wow! Not earthly praise. That's cheap. Heavenly glory. That message is what keeps them faithful to the end. Of course, the indwelling, empowering of the Spirit 
God's grace, 11 of the 12, paid the ultimate price for the cause of Christ. They die a martyr's death. Only John survived, and his life was far from easy. John, one of the youngest of the disciples, lived to the latter half of the first century. He was arrested and tortured and exiled on the island of Patmos. These disciples endured great trials for the cause of Christ, yet they remained steadfast. They remained fixed, standing for the Lord, no matter how difficult their, their situation got. They laid their lives down. How were they able to do that? Because of this promise? Jesus says, I assigned you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus tells them, you have sacrifice, you will sacrifice much more for me and for my sake, but none of you has sacrificed more than what you will receive back in glory. Amen? What you have sacrificed and will sacrifice does not hold a candle to what you will receive eternally from forsaking all to follow me. The sacrifices you have made and will make does not compare to a kingdom, a feast prepared at my table, believers, a throne in my forever kingdom. Doesn't hold a candle to that. What's tragic, tragic, our hearts should break or how many fail to realize this truth and unfortunately settle for far less than what God intends. They seek earthly praise and they forfeit heavenly glory. May that not be true of you. May that not be your story. Many Today, we see it all the time. They exchange the applause of heaven for earthly admiration. The kingdom in glory for an empire of dirt. I've shared this quote with you before. It, it's worth sharing again and again. C.S. Lewis said this. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll share it with you. Our problem is not that we want too much, it's that we're satisfied with too little. That's what's tragic. We settle for far less than what God intends. Our eyes are set too low, our desires are set below that which God has prepared for us. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're listening online and this message about a heavenly kingdom worth sacrificing for is completely foreign to you because you have yet to taste and see that the Lord is good. You have yet to come to see that those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. You have not experienced the joy that he brings that, that is experienced in the here and now as well as the then and there. Right, believers? Amen? There's joy to be had right here, right now, today. Never knew it until the Lord changed my heart and life and I experienced joy I never thought was possible. Maybe you've not laid hold of true riches. If this is you, I invite you today to forsake your way, forsake your pursuit of earthly 
praise and experience heavenly glory. Christ left true riches. Think about what he did for you so that you can experience this. And just imagine how great it is. We're told though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He stepped into the world he created. He emptied himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, by becoming one of us, a lowly one of us at that, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. He became poor. He laid his life down. He did not deserve to die. He died for us. Why do it? Why go from wealth to poverty, from riches to rags, from heavenly life to earthly life to death, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? If not, that's your invitation this morning. Turn from your sin. Fall before the King of God's kingdom, the King of glory, King Jesus, this morning. Trust in him alone for your salvation and be saved. Let's pray together.